0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. It's great to be with you today. Our first story today is called Anne Green's Second Life, and it's about a young woman at Oxford back in the 17th century who endured a brutal hanging and lived to tell about it. The 1651 broadside reads this way, News from the Dead or a true and exact narration of the miraculous deliverance of Anne Green, who, being executed at Oxford December 14, 1650, afterwards revived, and by the care of certain physicians there, is now perfectly recovered. Together with the manner of her suffering, and the means used for her recovery. Written by a scholar in Oxford for the satisfaction of a friend who desired to be informed concerning the truth of the matter. Printed by Leonard Litchfield. We do know a little about Anne Green, who was an English domestic servant who worked as a scullery maid in the house of Sir Thomas Reed. For you Paul fans, yes, just like Demelza was a scullery maid for Ross. Only in Demelza's case, she wound up being Ross's wife. While Anne Green wound up on trial for killing her newborn baby and being accused of murder. Anne was born in 1628 in Steeple Barton, Oxfordshire, and worked in the home of Thomas Reed a justice of the peace who lived in nearby Duns too, Anne would later claim that while working there as a 22-year-old servant, she was seduced by Sir Thomas's grandson, Geoffrey Reed, who was 16 or 17 years old. She became pregnant, though she later claimed that she was not aware of her pregnancy until she miscarried in the privy after 17 weeks. Her big mistake in judgment was when she tried to conceal the remains of the fetus, but was discovered and suspected of infanticide. Sir Thomas prosecuted Green using the legal presumption that a woman who concealed the death of her illegitimate child had murdered it. A midwife testified that the fetus was too underdeveloped to have ever been alive, and several servants who worked with Green testified that she had experienced issues for approximately one month before her miscarriage. In spite of the testimony, Green was found guilty of murder and was hanged at Oxford Castle on December 14, 1650. At her own request, several of her friends pulled her swinging body, and a soldier struck her four or five times with the butt of his musket to expedite her death. After half an hour, everyone believed her dead, so she was cut down and given to the University of Oxford physicians William Petty and Thomas Willis for dissection. The physicians opened Green's coffin the following day, and much to their shock and surprise, discovered that she had a faint pulse and was weakly breathing. Petty and Willis sought the help of their Oxford colleagues, Ralph Bathurst and Henry Clerk. The group of physicians tried many remedies to revive green, including pouring hot cordial down her throat, rubbing her limbs and extremities, bloodletting, applying a poultice to her breast, and having a tobacco-smoke enema, all of which tells you where medicine was in England in 1651. The physicians then placed her in a warm bed with another woman, who rubbed her and kept her warm. Green began to recover quickly, beginning to speak after 12 to 14 hours of treatment and eating solid food after four days. Anne Green was one tough cookie. Within one month she had fully recovered, aside from amnesia about the time surrounding her execution. Amnesia possibly caused by the trauma of being hanged or receiving repeated blows to the head by the butt of a musket. Choose either one. There is a happy side to her story. The authorities granted Green a reprieve from execution while she recovered and ultimately pardoned her, believing that the hand of God had saved her, demonstrating her innocence. Furthermore, one pamphleteer notes that Sir Thomas Reed died three days after Green's execution, so there was no prosecutor to object to the pardon. However, another pamphleteer writes that her recovery moved some of her enemies to wrath and indignation, insomuch that a great man amongst the rest "'moved to have her again carried to the place of execution, "'to be hanged up by the neck, contrary to all law, reason, and justice. "'But some honest soldiers then present "'seemed to be very much discontent thereat "'and intervened on Green's behalf. "'After her recovery, Green went to stay with friends in the country, "'taking the coffin with her. "'She married, had three children, and died in 1659. "'An interesting footnote,' Richard Watkins was actually the publisher of the broadside and pamphlet mentioned above, entitled News from the Dead. It included poems, of which there were 25 in various languages, and within those poems was a set of English verses by Christopher Wren, who was at that time a gentleman commoner, a student who paid all fees in advance, of Wadham College, and who later became a leading architect and scientist in England. Christopher Wren's name lives on in what is now the oldest college building still standing here in the U.S., the Wren Building at the College of William & Mary in Virginia. We now move forward in time, about 320 years, to a very unusual day in the life of television and movie personality, Jackie Gleason. This story, titled Jackie Gleason and the Aliens, concerns one of America's greatest TV and movie celebrities, a past president, Richard Nixon and a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to actually view four alien bodies at a top-secret government location. It sounds way out there, but possibly very true. I'll let you decide. Gleason, nicknamed The Great One, was definitely a bigger-than-life personality, a character who created some unforgettable likenesses on television back in the 50s when he appeared on a TV sitcom called The Honeymooners, in which Gleason played Ralph Cramden, a New York bus driver who lived in an apartment in a low-rent high-rise in brook with the love of his life, Alice. These two, along with their best friends Ed and Trixie Norton, captivated audiences. Though the original Honeymooners lasted only 39 episodes, Gleason used his popularity to launch his own entertainment shows, including later episodes of The Honeymooners, and frequently highlighted his co-stars from The Honeymooners throughout the 60s. Two of Ralph Cramden's expressions, One of these days, Alice, One of these days, and how sweet it is, became legend through the years. Now that you have an idea of who Jackie Gleason was, we'll begin the legend of Jackie Gleason and the aliens. Gleason was a well-known and longtime believer in the UFO phenomenon, and some say he had hounded his golf pal, Richard Nixon, for years to show him some kind of proof. Gleason made millions in the late 50s and 60s and benefited greatly from CBS's largesse when they gifted him a six-acre piece of land in upstate New York, which he was free to build on in any manner he chose. And he built a series of spaceship houses, a main one which he called the Mother Ship, a guest house called the Scout Ship, a round storage building, and two swimming pools, all of which were completed in 1959. There he built an ever-growing library containing every aspect of UFO knowledge. The asking price just five years ago when it sold? was $12 million. It has been said that Gleason had offered a large cash reward for proof that aliens exist, and it's very possible that Nixon took him up on that. Jackie Gleason had three wives, Genevieve Halford, Beverly McKittrick, and lastly, Marilyn Gleason, and it was Beverly McKittrick who spilled the beans on Jackie's special tour in 1973, courtesy of Richard Nixon of an alien morgue which had been set up for Nixon's viewing at Hampstead Air Force Base during Nixon's visit there in 1973. Gleason had met his second wife, Beverly McKittrick, at a country club in 1968, where she worked as a secretary. The two were married in a registry ceremony in Ashford, England, on July 4, 1970. The marriage lasted only four years, and in September 1974, Gleason filed for a divorce from McKittrick. She contested the divorce, asking for a reconciliation, but the divorce was granted on November 19, 1975. President Nixon was present in February 1973 when this story, told later by Beverly McKittrick, took place. By 1973, Nixon and Gleason were old time golf pals and friends, having shared a few rounds together back in 1969 at Inverary with David Eisenhower and golf pro Tony Penna. It was ten years later. When Beverly McKittrick gave an interview to the notoriously unreliable National Enquirer, in which she claimed that on February 19, 1973, Nixon took Gleason to an Air Force base after the two had played golf together to show Gleason what he was told were the remains of extraterrestrials. McKittrick was not present for the event, but claimed that Gleason had recounted the details of the event to her. According to McKittrick, Gleason and Nixon had played a round of golf during which the two spent time chatting about Gleason's interest in UFOs. Gleason had been a staunch supporter of the Nixon campaign. McKittrick says that sometime around midnight, Nixon suddenly showed up at midnight at Gleason's front door in Key Biscayne. She claims that he appeared alone, without his secret service, a detail that makes the story considerably less credible. But as the story goes, Nixon and Gleason drove through the night to Homestead Air Force Base, 35 miles southwest of Miami. After entering the base, Nixon drove to a heavily guarded building at the far end of the compound where the two men were allowed into the facility. According to McKittrick, Gleason told her, There were a number of labs we passed through first before we entered a section where Nixon pointed out what he said was the wreckage from a flying saucer enclosed in several large cases. Next, we went into an inner chamber and there were six or eight of what looked like glass-topped Coke freezers. Inside them were the mangled remains of what I took to be children. McKittrick described the incident to the Inquirer as follows. I'll never forget the night in 1973 my famous husband came home, slumped white-faced in an armchair, and spilled out an incredible story to me. He was late. It was around 11.30 p.m., and I'd been worried. As soon as I heard his key turn in the lock of our golf course home in Inverary, Florida, I jumped to my feet and asked, "'Where have you been?' "'His reply stunned me. "'I've been at Homestead Air Force Base, "'and I've seen the bodies of some aliens from outer space. "'It's top secret. "'Only a few people know. "'But the President arranged for me to be escorted in there and see them.' "'Gleason went on to tell her, "'and there were the aliens, lying on four separate tables. "'They were tiny, only about two feet tall, "'with small, bald heads and disproportionately large ears.' They must have been dead for some time, because they'd been embalmed. Gleason told her that Nixon told him that these were actually the remains of deceased aliens. She said that seeing this shook Gleason to the core, and he had difficulty sleeping for several weeks. When he returned home, he told his wife about what he had seen and swore her to secrecy. The couple were already in the process of separating, and Beverly was also in the process of writing a book about her relationship with the mercurial and hard-drinking funny man. When the Enquirer story came out, Gleason kept silent about the allegation until 1986. At that time, he invited Larry Warren, a ufologist, and the author and eyewitness to the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. The two men met at Gleason's New York home. According to Warren, after a few drinks, Gleason repeated the story to him. Gleason died a year later in 1987. Supposedly, the only persons he told about the incident were McKittrick and Warren, but there is good reason to believe that the story is completely made up. According to Nixon's Daily Diary, available on the Nixon Library website, Nixon was in Key Biscayne on February 19, 1973, but the main item on his agenda was a meeting with the AFL-CIO. He did attend Gleason's annual golf tournament at the Inverary Golf and Country Club, spending only 40 minutes there. Jackie swore his wife to secrecy. But after their divorce, she released the story to the National Enquirer, which everyone loves to call a lying rag, but which occasionally does print very accurate stories, oftentimes too crazy to be believed. But the truth is, you just never know. Now we can add two words to his famous phrase, to the moon, those being, and beyond. We'll return with two more stories right after these sponsor messages. And now our story, Steve McQueen and the Blob and the Magnificent Seven. Most of you know that I'm fascinated with movie backstories, and this one is pretty unique in that it tells a couple of interesting stories about Steve McQueen. He was one of my favorite actors from an earlier time period who created some memorable characters in movies like Bullet, I, Tom Horn, The Great Escape, The Thomas Crown Affair, and The Magnificent Seven. In the book titled, Steve McQueen, Living on the Edge, by Michael Munn, McQueen is described as one of the greatest anti-heroes of all time, and Munn does a good job of following his turbulent life from time in a school for wayward children to McQueen's time in the Merchant Navy, from which he escaped, to becoming a towel boy in a brothel in the Dominican Republic, to falling into acting. On the set of The Magnificent Seven, McQueen spent much of his time arguing with co-star Charles Bronson over who had had the worst childhood. McQueen was a complicated man who did most of his own stunts, and he was difficult to work with, wanting scripts rewritten to suit his own perception of his character, which, looking back at the characters he created, worked out pretty well for him, but it drove directors crazy. McQueen's first starring role was in a movie called The Blob, a sci-fi thriller which was filmed in southeast Pennsylvania, in and around Phoenixville, which was one of my hangouts as a boy, who spent his summers bicycling all over Valley Forge Park and surrounding one-pump towns like Phoenixville. There was a Coca-Cola bottle machine, not a standing one-armed bandit, but one of those Coke dispensers that was parallel to the ground, the ones where you grabbed the bottle and slid it to the release, then pulled it up, with ice still clinging to it. There at that one gas station in Phoenixville that served up refreshing Orange Crush and Cokes for us wandering kids, And that one gas station was the place where Steve McQueen started his movie career by saving the known universe from a man-eating alien blob. Pennsylvania didn't and doesn't get many films. So this one is still talked about, mostly by descendants of locals, in what was, and in some cases still is, the Pennsylvania backwoods bordering the park. There's also a diner there in Phoenixville where the owner promised us boys $5 each for any muskrats we could trap and deliver to him. Hmm. But that's another story. McQueen was offered $3,000, or a smaller fee, plus 10% of the profits. But he took the 3000 figuring, like everyone else, that this B-movie with a 240000 budget would never make it. But the movie ended up doing $12 million for Paramount and would have made McQueen a millionaire at first try. From the blob, we move ahead to The Magnificent Seven. It was Yule Brenner who first saw the Japanese movie The Seven Samurai and decided it would make a great western. So, soaking in the success of The King and I, he bought the rights to it for $240,000. He wanted to direct, but Tyrone Power died halfway through Solomon and Sheba, and the United Artists wanted Brenner to replace him as director. Brenner said yes, but only if United Artists would bankroll The Magnificent Seven and a legendary western was born of Japanese and United Artists heritage. John Sturgis would direct, and he needed some badass heroes to fill in the roles of the Magnificent Seven. Steve McQueen was cast as Vin, U. Brenner's second-in-command, Brenner obviously having placed himself as the leader. Then James Coburn was signed as the knife-thrower. Then Robert Vaughn, Charles Bronson, Eli Wallach, Brad Dexter, and Horst Buchholz. They all met in February of 1960 in Cuernavaca, Mexico, for filming. McQueen had to teach Yul Brynner how to draw a gun, but didn't bother to teach him all the gun tricks he knew, which led Brynner to believe that he was going to get upstaged. But Yul had his own way of upstaging the others, if not while filming, while off-camera. Brynner turned up for the first scene with an entourage of gophers, including a hairdresser to keep his bald scalp clean and trimmed. Along with them, he brought his huge mobile home, which included a secretary. Meanwhile, McQueen was doing his best to rattle Brenner by stealing what scenes he could from him. If it was Yule Brenner's scene, McLean can be seen fixing his hat just this way or spinning the cylinders on his pistol in the background. That kind of stuff drove Yule Brenner crazy. Then they all started upstaging each other in one way or another. There came a scene where the Magnificent Seven were to cross the river on horseback. Brenner's at the head, and McQueen is behind him. McQueen suddenly takes off his hat, leans down from his horse, and scoops up some water into his hat and drinks it, while Charles Bronson, behind McQueen, undoes his shirt to show off his chest, while James Coburn, behind him, is doing three verses from Hamlet. Actor Eli Wallach was watching all this from off-screen, where he waited with his banditos to do the next pillaging scene and couldn't help but laugh. The river scene didn't make the cuts, but you can see a lot of examples of Steve McQueen grabbing attention. The river scene did become a part of the off-screen movie legend. The Magnificent Upstaging Seven Our last story is called Johnny Cash Goes to Folsom. I'm a country music fan, and I enjoy 80s country, especially the music of George Strait, Toby Keith, and then going back a little further... Johnny Cash and June Carter, and for vocal groups, the Oak Ridge Boys and the Statler Brothers. One Johnny Cash song I've always liked was Folsom Prison Blues, which he originally did back in 1955 and then repopularized in 1968 with his first live album, Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison. He did two performances at Folsom Prison in 1968, and there's a story behind his choosing to do that and how it turned his career around. And this is the story. After his 1955 song Folsom Prison Blues, Cash had been interested in recording a performance at a prison. His idea was put on hold until 1967, when personal changes at Columbia Records put Bob Johnston in charge of producing Cash's material. Cash had recently controlled his drug abuse problems and was looking to turn his career around after several years of limited commercial success. Backed by June Carter, Carl Perkins and his backing band, the Tennessee Three, Cash performed two shows at Folsom State Prison in California on January 13, 1968. The initial release of the album consists of 15 songs from the first show and two from the second show. Along with Johnny at Folsom were June Carter and the Statler brothers. Johnny Cash, the man in black, had never done time, but had some deep feelings for those who were lost and facing the bottom of the barrel. He himself, not unlike many of his counterparts, had gone from music stardom to a person he himself didn't even recognize, all thanks to drugs. And maybe some prison concerts could inspire others. It was worth a try. On January 10, 1968, Cash and June Carter checked into the El Rancho Motel in Sacramento, California. They were later accompanied by the Tennessee Three, Carl Perkins and the Statler Brothers. Johnny's father, Ray Cash, Reverend Floyd Gressett pastor of Avenue Community Church in Ventura, California, where Cash often attended services, who counseled inmates at Folsom and helped facilitate the concert, and producer Johnston. The performers rehearsed for two days, an uncommon occurrence for them, sometimes with two or more songs rehearsed concurrently by various combinations of musicians. During the rehearsal sessions on January 12th, California Governor Ronald Reagan, who was at the hotel for an after-dinner speech, visited the band and offered his encouragement. One focus of the sessions was to learn Greystone Chapel, a song written by Folsom inmate Glenn Shirley. Shirley recorded a version of the song, which he passed on to Reverend Gressett, via the prison's recreation director, and he had no idea that the entertainment would include his song. On January 13th, the group traveled to Folsom, meeting Los Angeles Times writer Robert Hilburn and Columbia photographer Jim Marshall, who were hired to document the album for the liner notes. Cash decided to hold two performances on January 13th, one at 9.40 a.m. and one at 12.40 p.m., in case the first performance proved unsatisfactory. After an introduction by M.C. Hugh Cherry, who encouraged the prisoners to respond to Cash's performance, Carl Perkins took the stage and performed his hit song, Blue Suede Shoes. Following this song, the Statler brothers sang their hit, Flowers on the Wall, and the country standard, This Old House. Cherry returned to the stage and instructed the inmates not to cheer for Cash until he introduced himself, and they obliged. Waiting for the introduction would be the start of the Cash biopic, Walk the Line, which was released in 2005. Cash opened both shows with a rendition of Folsom Prison Blues, followed by many songs about prison, including The Wall, Green Green Grass of Home, and the Gallows Humor song, 25 Minutes to Go. Cash also included other songs of despair, such as the Merle Travis song, Dark as a Dungeon. Following Orange Blossom Special, Cash included a few slow, ballad-type songs, including Send a Picture of Mother and The Long Black Veil, followed by three novelty songs from his album, Everybody Loves a Nut, Dirty Old Egg-Sucking Dog, Flush from the Bathroom of Your Heart, and Joe Bean. June Carter joined Cash to perform a pair of duets, after a seven-minute version of a song from his Blood, Sweat & Tears album, The Legend of John Henry's Hammer. Cash took a break, and June Carter recited a poem. Cash ended both concerts with Shirley's Greystone Chapel. The second concert was not as fruitful as the first. The musicians were fatigued from the earlier show. Only two songs from the second concert, Give My Love to Rose and I Got Stripes, made it onto the LP release. The album release of At Folsom in Prison, was prepared in four months. Despite the recent success of Rosanna's Going Wild, a cash single released just before the Folsom concerts that reached number two on the country charts. Columbia initially invested little in the album or its single, Folsom Prison Blues. This was due partially to Columbia's focus in its promotional efforts on pop stars rather than country artists. Nevertheless, the single charted on the Billboard Hot 100 on May 25, 1968. It also hit the country charts a week later. The single suffered a setback when Sirhan Sirhan assassinated Senator Robert F. Kennedy on June 5, 1968. Radio stations ceased playing the single due to the macabre line, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Reeling in the success prior to the assassination, Columbia demanded Johnston remix the single with the line removed. Despite protests from cash, the single was edited and re-released. The new version became a success, reaching number 1 on the country charts and the top 40 on the national charts. The single prompted the album to climb the album charts, eventually reaching number 1 on the top country albums chart and number 13 on the pop albums chart, the forerunner to the Billboard 200. By August of 1968, Folsom had shipped over 300,000 copies. 2 months later, it was certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America for shipping over 500,000 copies. The success of At Folsom Prison revitalized Cash's career. According to Cash, that's where things really got started for me again. Sun Records redubbed Cash's previous B-side, Get Rhythm, with applause similar to Folsom's, and it became successful enough to enter the Hot 100. Cash returned to the prison scene in 1969 when he recorded At San Quentin, that St. Quentin became Cash's first album to hit number one on the pop chart and produced the number two hit, A Boy Named Sue. By the way, a young Merle Haggard, the young man for whom Mama tried so hard, was in the audience and was inspired in a big way to make something of himself, which he did. The ensuing popularity from the Folsom concert also prompted ABC to give Cash's own television show. So was going to Folsom Prison a good decision? It looks to me like it was. At the 11th annual Grammy Awards in 1969, the album "Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison" won the Grammy Award for Best Album Notes, while the song "Folsom Prison Blues" won Cash the Grammy Award for Best Country Vocal Performance. Mail. Here's a piece of an article called "I Went with Johnny Cash to Folsom Prison," posted by Aaron Blake Moore. The gates of Folsom State Prison closed behind Gene Bailey. It was 1968 and it was the first time the 28-year-old had ever been to state prison. When you walk through there, and they shut that door, he says, you realize that many men who have that happen never see their freedom again. It's pretty daunting. Unlike the people he met inside, though, Bailey wasn't there to do time. The young reporter for the Ventura Star Free Press was there to see country music star Johnny Cash perform for the prisoners. It turned out to be an historic day. Cash's January 13, 1968 performance at the California prison wasn't just galvanizing. It revived Cash's flagging career, produced a hit album, and has become the stuff of music legend. And Bailey, who was one of just a handful of non-prisoners to witness the concert, still feels its reverberations today. At the time, he says, Cash wasn't exactly a beloved celebrity. You know, John was really on the skids, he remembers. Cash had made a string of bad headlines for doing everything from smuggling pills across the Mexico border to trespassing. He had struggled with drug use, conducted an open affair with June Carter, he ultimately divorced his first wife and remarried, and had even been targeted by hate groups. As a result, newspapers hated him, and he distrusted reporters. Nevertheless, the Reverend Floyd Gressett, one of Cash's closest friends, invited Bailey and his colleague photographer Dan Pausch to cover the concert. Only one other reporter, Robert Hilburn, attended. Bailey recalls being surprised that Cash was close to a minister. It seemed so incongruous, he says. In fact, Gresset was the reason Cash would perform at Folsom Prison in the first place. The minister also counseled state prisoners and asked Cash if he'd be interested in meeting some of them. Cash, who had written Folsom Prison Blues back in 1953, was intrigued by the thought of meeting inmates and performing a song at the prison that inspired it. In November 1966, he put on a show at Folsom, and in 1968, he decided to return to record an album. Before the concert, Bailey went to Cash's parents' home. There he met John and June. My first introduction to them was seeing them walking down this country road, he recalls. I wish I had a picture of that. Cash, who was dressed in a blue sport coat and turtleneck, defied his expectations. He looked like a movie star, he recalls. Bailey, who'd been a fan of Cash's early hits as a high school kid in Montana, was starstruck. He was just so down-to-earth and friendly, he recalls, his voice softening. Totally charming, a great smile. He looked like the guy next door, someone you'd want to hang out with. Before the show, had played Cash a demo written and recorded by a prisoner serving time for armed robbery named Glenn Shirley. It was a song called Greystone Chapel, and Cash was immediately moved by it. "'I want to record that,' he said. He learned the song and rehearsed it with his band. On the day of the concert, Bailey sat on a bench with the prisoners and experienced one of history's most remarkable performances. As the sound bounced off the granite walls of the packed dining hall, he watched the prisoners around him. "'It was probably the first time they were allowed to give such emotion,' he says. Encouraged by the MC to be part of the show, the inmates obeyed, hollering, screaming, and singing along. It was quite an education, he recalls. You know, you visualize murderers and thieves looking like really bad guys. Probably 50% looked like the boy next door. They were just like high school kids at a big concert. Of course, it wasn't just any concert. Armed guards surrounded the crowd, and Cash was vitally aware that he was performing for people who couldn't leave when the show was over. At the end of the show, Cash announced that he was going to sing a song by Glenn Shirley. It was a complete surprise to Shirley, who was seated in the front row. He jumped out of his chair, Bailey recalls. I thought his eyes were going to bolt out of his head. I don't think I've ever seen a happier man alive. The concert ended up changing Shirley's life. He recorded a successful live album in prison and eventually got out of jail. He went on to join Cash's band, but was fired after threatening to kill one of his bandmates. Shirley, who struggled with life outside of prison, eventually killed himself. Cash paid for his burial. Cash became an advocate for prison reform after recording at Folsom Prison. After the show, he performed at multiple other prison shows, recording a follow-up album at San Quentin in 1959 to a prison audience that included future country legend Merle Haggard. He always identified with the underdog, Cash's brother Tommy told the BBC in 2013. For Bailey, the concert was a -a once-in-a-lifetime event, one he feels lucky to have witnessed. You never know when one day might impact your entire life, he was to say. And it was the day and the concert that turned Johnny Cash's career around. We hope you enjoyed these four stories from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Please share our show with a friend and join us again every Sunday at noon Eastern Time. And be sure to check out our archives at your podcast host, be it Apple, Spotify, Google Podcast, Comcast, or dozens of others who carry our shows. And speaking of shows, be sure to check out our short story podcast, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, where you'll find a wide selection of terrific short stories, as well as 1001 Sherlock Holmes stories, where you'll find all the great Sherlock mysteries, as well as a mountain of Arthur Conan Doyle's works, including his personal reminiscences. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe. And we'll be back soon.